Amen. How many people are ready for the word today? All right. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. And we're going to read verses 8 through 10. This is a, a really great parable here. It's called the parable of the lost coin. Hallelujah. Please, God, come and visit with us today. Be with us. Be with me. Make the word come alive to us, God, in Jesus' name. Verse 8, there was a woman who had ten silver coins. So if this woman loses one of her coins, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Mm, I love that. You've heard me say when we are giving invitations for people to give their life to Christ um, and as people respond. Praise God, last week, I mean, we had... I, there was probably a couple dozen people between both services that made decisions for Christ or to rededicate their life. Um, I live for that. I mean, this is amazing. And you probably heard me say when we do that a lot of times, like, man, there is an, a chorus in heaven that is echoing right now for you. That's not just something that sounds good that a pastor says. That's right out of Scripture. We just read it right there. All of the angels in the presence of God are rejoicing when just one sinner repents. This parable, along with some other parables, um, help us to see something that's very important that needs to kind of stand off the pages of Scripture to us. And that is the way that, that Jesus sees and the way that Jesus wants us to see the value that is being placed in one soul, one single soul. Uh, in fact, I'm calling this message today, if you're taking notes, the immeasurable value of one soul. Jesus said in Mark eight thirty six, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. I want you to see something. You maybe have not thought of it this way before. Maybe you have. But Jesus, in this verse, and I believe in these, these parables that we look at too, it, it continues to reinforce this, but he's, he basically takes the value or the worth that you could sum up if you were to appraise the value of the entire world. The world's system, the world's treasure. I mean, I'm talking about every mountain side, every valley, every piece of real estate. I'm talking about every piece of treasure, of gold and silver and precious gems that could be mined out of the earth. I'm talking about the value of the world and the, the world's system and the transient parts of this world. Jesus says, what value is it if a man gains all of that? He, one person literally accumulates everything in the entire world 
but in the process of that, he loses his own soul. You got to see this. He says that one soul, the value of one soul that's created for life beyond this earth, that's for eternity, that one soul, the value of that is worth more than everything here in this temporal world environment. Wow. Wow, that's a big deal. I'm going to suggest to you, friends, church, that, you know, God's part of God's plan on this earth is to reach lost souls. I think we know that. But furthermore, part of his plan to reach lost souls, this, this may hit you where you're at today, involves using you and in your life to reach other lost souls and bring them to Jesus. That's part of his strategy, the way he's going to do it. And in order for us to make an impact on multitudes or whatever the number is, right? God says there's leaders of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands and we get all that. So whatever God's plan is for each of us, the point is, if we're going to reach multitudes, I am convinced we've got to get a hold of this right here. We have to understand the value of just one soul. One. You know, there's a, um, a concept you may have heard. It's, it's a popular concept, and there are applications where it does make sense, but there are places it doesn't. The concept is, it's, it's called the greater good. How many have heard of that before? The greater good, the greater good premise, right? It says that we, you know, we reach for whatever the greatest good is, and so we're willing to sacrifice small numbers in order to achieve big numbers, um, in, in business, this could make sense. You'd say, we're not going to waste dollars in order to chase after pennies, right? There are times where that makes sense. Um, I like to go fishing, and one of the things uh, when you go fishing is sometimes you will get your lure stuck up on the bank, you know, your nice new lure that you spent 5 or $10 for. And, and in your mind, you always want to go in for that lure to get it out. Um, but I've learned that when you go in for that $5 lure, sometimes you break your $1,000 trolling motor or you scratch up your boat really bad. And so I'm kind of like, you know what, cut the line. It's not worth it, right? Get a big amen or, I don't know, yeah, amen. And so there are, there are times where that makes sense. But guys, this is such an important thing. This does not make sense when we are talking about the value of a soul, Jesus, you know, he said, Let's, the shepherd will leave the 99 to go get the one that's lost and that's went astray. I, I mean, he doesn't say, man, we're, we're, we better stay because we're worried that the 99 might drift. Let's just let the one go because it's the greater good. There's just this thing in the heart of Jesus that needs to get in our heart as, as sons and daughters in the kingdom, in the body of Christ, moving things forward that we see and value one soul, the price of a soul, the way that Jesus does, which is it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. There's no length that Jesus is not willing to go to to reach even one soul. And in this year of devotion that we're on, I'd like to just encourage you to think about, you know, how would this look in, in the area of you sharing your testimony with someone? Maybe you've never done that before. 
Or maybe it looks like inviting someone to church that you've been wanting to invite, but you've just been shy and you're, you're not sure how to do that. Or maybe it's you leading someone to Christ. Actually leading someone to salvation. I mean, I'm telling you, once you do, it's like you think you got excited about other things in life. When someone goes from death to life because God used you to draw them to Christ, it'll do something for you that nothing else can do. Powerful. Year of devotion, making that move forward. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Just want to remind you, he was speaking to disciples. Disciples. Saying it's part of being a disciple is that you're going to you're going to lead other people to me. Hmm. You're going to reach others for me. And so what I wanted to do today is just thinking about the measurable value of one's soul. And then when that's what our heart is, then we're really positioned to impact multitudes. But if we don't grasp the value of one's soul, I'm not sure that we're really ready to reach the masses. Um, and I, I want to take you on a journey today. A journey with the Apostle Paul. And in the New Testament, we know that the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote about 50% of the New Testament. A substantial portion. This is a guy who impact, impacted thousands and thousands and through his writings, millions. We can't even put a number on it, right? But he, he also understood that value of just one soul. And I want to take you on a journey today. We're, we're going to kind of move through some different parts of it. But, you know, Paul was known for having specifically three missionary journeys, three major journeys. He did a lot of ministry, but three major journeys where he, he went on a course and went to a bunch of different cities. He went all throughout Asia. He went all throughout Greece started churches, reinforced churches. I mean, it's, it's, it's massively impressive the way that this apostle uh, impacted the New Testament church early on. And you look at these three missionary journeys, it's a phenomenal study. We talked a little bit about life groups coming up. Um, if somebody's looking for an interesting subject or study to do, that's a great one, the missionary journeys of Paul. Fascinating. Some theologians consider a fourth missionary journey whether you do or don't doesn't really matter but this 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 last part of Paul's life it does kind of look like a missionary journey uh, that he went on and that's the one I really want to walk you through today it's it's mostly in the back part of the book of Acts that we see this and uh, look at how Paul was was leaning in to every soul that he could touch that he could reach but also how he was willing to be, and this is a huge one, totally inconvenienced. <laughs> uh, discomforted would be an understatement in order to get in position to reach even one person. I just, I wonder sometimes, like, I, I, I ask myself this, like, Matt, how uncomfortable are you really willing to be? In order to reach people. Is there a line there? You know. And um, I just get challenged with this a lot. Especially when I see how Paul. How Paul operated. You know. I'm going to take you through these four places that he went. 
along this process and just kind of examine a few aspects of it. Uh, but keep that in mind, just the immeasurable value of a soul. And so first place that he goes to, which he is actually arrested, is in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, he's in Jerusalem, and Paul actually, he gets arrested because the Jews, his own people, are outraged at him. He's creating a disturbance, and they're accusing him of bringing Gentiles, non-Jews, into the temple. And you got to see this. There's this huge barrier uh, to the harvest happening that the Jews have to get over, and many of them never do, which is that God is opening up the kingdom to the nations of the earth. It's not strictly exclusive to the nation of Israel. And God wants to reach out and open up his kingdom to the whole world. And a lot of them have a big problem with that. They get outraged. And so Paul gets arrested. And they say things like, take him away. This man is not fit to live. They tear, he, they tear their clothes and he gets put into this prison and he's held there and awaiting some kind of a trial. But the, the Jewish Pharisees, they want him dead. They want him to be killed. They actually make this vow. This is crazy, but they make a vow that they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And the root of this is because they don't want Gentiles being a part of the family of God. For them, they just, they cannot, their mind can't go there. They're just, they can't get outside their box. And it's just amazing to see that pharisaical spirit that has such like a, a loathing and a disgust when the outcast, when the far from God are invited into the kingdom of God. Let me say this, that here in the way that we do ministry, the way that we contend for the church to get built here, uh, we reach hard for the sinner. <laughs> I mean, we lean in hard to reach that person who is the furthest from God, who is trapped in darkness. This place would be a place that they would come into and that they would feel loved. They would feel welcomed. That they would come in here and then, and the preconceived ideas they maybe have that they don't belong in church or around Christians would just get shattered and broken off of them because the presence of God and the love of God is just surrounding them and filling this house. It's such a part of my heart because that outcast, that far from God, that person who's like, just, just do not look like the person that's following God. That was me. I mean, that was who I was. I was chasing everything in this world. I was not very interested in the things of God. I was interested in my kingdom. I was interested in what I could accumulate, what could be done for me. The idea of me being inconvenienced for the sake of other people, me getting into the kingdom was a completely foreign concept to me. And so when I think about all those people who are trapped in darkness, who are far from God, I, I'm not the slightest bit uncomfortable around them. I, I just have a love in my heart to say, whoever is the furthest from God, let us welcome them in and then see their life transform. Never in a way do we muddy truth or, I mean, we herald truth every step of the way. There is one way to salvation and it's through Jesus Christ. We will not make that muddy at all. But I just want you to understand that 
as God continues to do a work in here, these seats and these chairs and these places are going to be filled with people who look all kinds of different ways. Amen? Hallelujah. And so Paul, he's in Jerusalem, and they, they make this vow that they're going to get him, have him killed. And, uh, and they put him on trial, and they're talking, and Paul's giving his defense. And they can't, they can't find anything wrong with him. That's the issue. They cannot... They're accusing him of all these things, but they can't prove anything because at the end of the day, he didn't do anything wrong. And at one particular point, they're saying things about Paul, and, and he says, you know, I've not broken any laws. I've not done anything that you're accusing me of. And then the high priest gets upset, and he tells a couple people to sh- strike him in the face, and they, they hit him. I like a guy who can take a punch, you know. Paul took a bunch of them. And so they hit him, and then they decide they're going to kill him, and they try to set up this ambush where they're going to bring him down the next day for questioning, but there's 40 people who lie in wait, 40 men who lie in wait to kill Paul on this road. And so Paul's nephew finds out about it, about the conspiracy, and he goes to the commander of the Roman legion because the Romans are really in control here, right? They're the ones that are really governing, and they're in Israel, they're occupying Israel, they really have control and so the nephew of Paul goes to the Roman commander, lets him know about this plot. And then the Roman commander says, well, we can't, we're not going to have this. And so they take Paul away secretly by night. They get him out of Jerusalem and they take him to this next place. Point number two, if you're taking notes on our destination, is Caesarea. They take him to Caesarea. There are two Caesareas in the Bible um, one is on the Mediterranean Sea. That's the place where Paul goes in this occasion. And this is the place where Herod's headquarters were. So it's kind of like a bit of a fortress. Um, barracks are there for the Romans, all this stuff. And so now Paul's he's, he's safer because they get him out of Jerusalem. And so he goes there and he gives his defense again, and the governor there is a guy named Felix. And so Governor Felix listens to Paul, they hear him out, they can't prove anything, and then they basically put him in prison and hold him here for two years. Two years. I'm just trying to draw some aspects of the inconvenience out a little bit for us today. He goes through cold winters, you know, probably not well taken care of. He's sitting in this prison for two years. I'm sure I would be thinking, I didn't even do anything to get here. This is unfair, right? But the whole time he's in this prison, they allow him to have visitors. So the Bible accounts for the, all these times that Paul's in prison. He's, you know, we know he's writing letters and doing things like that. But he's also sharing the gospel with every person who comes there. We cannot even put a number on the conversions that happened by people who visited Paul while he was in prison. Just personal visits, much less the letters and everywhere that that reached. I'm just trying to make it a point to us that sometimes what we view as an inconvenience is actually a platform. It's actually a platform because, because it puts us in position to get to some of those hard-to-reach people in hard-to-reach places. And this is the question I found myself asking myself this week, is am, am I solid enough to be able to get into some really uncomfortable positions 
because that's what it's going to take to be in place to reach some of those people who are walled off and really far out there away from God? Would I, would I be okay with that to where my life could be used that way? Or is there a line, is there kind of a boundary to how far I'm willing to go? I'm hoping that God will come in this generation and just blow the lid off of those boundaries. That we raise up a, a generation of people who would say, I'll go to the ends of the earth to reach more for Christ. Oh, and so he gets, uh, he gets in Caesarea and he spends his time there. And then they bring him out after two years, the, the governors um, rotate. And so now it's not Felix anymore. It's this guy named Festus. And so Festus is the new governor. And so the Jews, they, uh, they know the governor is new. And so they come back down and they appeal to the new governor. We need to get Paul out here. We need to... We've got accusations against him. You know what that tells me? They never let it go. Like it's two years later and they have just as much hate and spite for this guy because he's preaching a message that says Christ came. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled your laws. We're not breaking any laws. Christ fulfilled them and they've went into a new era of a new covenant and that whole kingdom has now been opened up to the nations of the world. They hate this. They hate this. And so now they're going to bring him back on trial because it's a new governor and he listens and they appeal to him. And so they bring Paul out. And this time God's wisdom is, is running through Paul, which I just want to point out to us that when we are committed to being used for the kingdom, that God will give us wisdom in the moments we need it to be able to articulate, to respond or not respond. The wisdom of God can guide us through every situation we would go through. And so Paul's in this place where they're questioning him and this time it's like he's saying, I've had enough of this. I, we've, went, we've been going in circles. All of these things you're accusing me of, we've already addressed them, and you have found no fault in me. He says something really powerful. He says, if I was guilty of anything, I have no problem dying. Put me to death. If I'm guilty of anything that I did wrong, put me to death. But I'm not guilty. And he says something really powerful here. He says, and so in this moment now, I appeal to Caesar. Wow. I appeal to Caesar. I'd like you to just let that statement maybe stick in your mind a little bit. Because what he said when he said, I appeal to Caesar, is he said, I'm going to be heard now in front of Roman uh, magistrates. He's taking the courtroom now to a new place. So think about this. I'm convinced of this. That Paul, throughout all of this time, was examining kingdom opportunities that were in front of him. I think that he now was seeing that there is an audience of people. Romans, Greek culture, they worshipped mythical gods and all that. He knows that it's part of his mission to take the gospel to the nations of the world and the Gentiles. And now Paul, under the inspiration of God, seizes the opportunity and says, I appeal to Caesar. We were in Israel um, a couple of times on tours, and I, I want to show you a picture here. And we were in this place of Caesarea, and this is the spot right here. And they actually believe this would have been the open square the, the, the court hearing, if you will, that Paul would have stood up and spoke to all of the people who were around. 
and gave his defense of the gospel and of the kingdom of God being opened up to the Gentiles. It, it, was, it was such an uh, emotional moment for me. It just it hit me as I looked around at all the seats. There are these little stone benches everywhere. It's like people would just gather in the middle of the square daily to see what was going on. What's the latest news? What's the interesting things of the day? This is part of what culture looked like. And I think Paul stopped and he looked back and I, I think he had this understanding that I, I have the opportunity now, even though I am in chains, I am bound, like I have the opportunity to, to let my life bring a message forth that's going to share the good news of the gospel to Jews, to Gentiles, to Romans, to soldiers, to peasants. I mean, they're all there in the square. You name it, they're there. And Paul is ready to stand up and he speaks in this square. And oh my gosh, I, don't even, I can't even imagine the ripple effect of the impact of him being willing to do that. And so when he's done, they say, okay, you'll go to Caesar. So they send him to Caesar on a boat, on a ship. He has to go to, uh, he has to, go to Rome. But there's some things that happen along the way to Rome on this voyage on the ship. They, they go to a couple of ports and then they head down through the, the Mediterranean and they go down uh, to this island called Crete and a massive storm begins to hit. So they take port for a little bit on the island of Crete and Paul says, we need to stay here. We, we, we can't leave until after winter because the weather will be treacherous. He, under, he understands sea voyaging. But the Roman commander, there's a bunch of prisoners on the ship with Paul. They're trying to get the prisoners to Rome. And they say, we're, we're not staying here. We're going to continue on. And so they, they head down on this uh, journey, decide to go out on the ship and keep going. And when they go out, sure enough, this massive northeastern storm called Euroclidon sets in. And they're trying to go one way, and the storm is so intense that they can't. They, can't, they can do nothing except just let the wind start to blow them. They can't go against the wind. They, so now they're, they're floating in the wind in these treacherous storms for 14 days. Two weeks. I got a map, actually, if you could put that up. You can kind of see, you see those lines there. So he stopped up here, but down there in the center of the Mediterranean, that's Crete. They landed at the port there at Fairhavens, and they were, they were going to try to go up to Rome, but you see how it just keeps blowing them to the west, to the west, to the west. It just keeps pushing them out there. They keep going further and further. Um, it's kind of interesting now. You can actually take a cruise to all these different places uh, of Paul's voyages and stuff. But that's not what he was doing. They weren't, it, was, it was not a vacation <laughs> that they were dealing with. So they land on this island called Malta. Okay, the ship is getting bashed by the waves. They throw everything out of the ship. They even throw their food out because they're just, there's the ship, they're doing everything they can to survive. And then they, they see this bay this little port area of this island of Malta in sight, and they try to get there, and then the ship gets stuck on the reef of the rocks, and they can't even get in, and then the waves are crashing, and it's, it's destroying the ship. And so Paul encourages the men and just lets them know, guys, 
I love this. He says, nobody's going to die. And you know what he said? He could say, because the Lord had told him that he had to go to Rome. The Spirit of God visited Paul and said, you're going to Rome. Mm. So something was spoken to Paul that was a promise that he is reminding himself and others of that says, I know what we see in this moment, but it's not going to happen because there's a promise that hasn't been fulfilled that's going to be fulfilled. Wow. And so they end up abandoning the ship. They, de- they decide not to kill the prisoners, which normally they would do that, kill all the prisoners so that they couldn't get away. So they decide not to kill all the prisoners, and they go to shore, and they end up on this island called Malta. And there are natives there, people who probably never heard anything about what Paul is teaching whatsoever. It's just interesting because now Paul is in a very unique position. I guess that's what I'm trying to get us to see. He's, he's suffered a lot of things, and now he's suffering shipwreck. But if, if it wouldn't have been for shipwreck, he'd never be on this island. He'd never be in position to share the good news with people who maybe would have never heard it before if Paul hadn't landed there. I, I just wonder, like, would I be willing to endure shipwreck and have a good attitude about it? Like, I'm, somebody's here. I'm going to, you know, my car broke down. Am I like, is my day ruined? Is my week ruined? Or is it, am I thinking like, I mean, I'll probably meet somebody at the auto repair shop now. It's just the mindset, right, that drives us during these times. Maybe there's a soul on the other end of this. God's trying to get me in position to just touch one life. And then he gets on the island, and there are these natives there, and this is so crazy. I mean, just crazy. It, he's, they're, they're making a fire on the island after everybody gets to back from sea. Uh, you know, they get to safety. Paul's gathering firewood on this island after all that he's been through. And it says that a viper, a snake, jumps out of the wood and bites Paul in the hand. I'm just, I got to level with you. I think this is the point where I would probably be like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, Seriously, after all of this, I'm going to get bit by a snake on the hand? Has anybody here ever said, just just be honest, have you ever said something like this? That's it. That's the final straw. I am done. How many people ever said it? Right? Done with what? (laughs) With what, right? Like we just, that's it. Final straw. That's it. I can't take any more. Let me encourage you, friend, whatever you're going through, whatever that looks like right now, if God is is moving your life around and he's putting you in position to reach people, because believe it or not, this thing is bigger than us. God's plan is bigger than just me and my life. There's a lot of souls that God is interested in bringing us to. And, and, And if you've caught yourself or said, I can't do it anymore, that's the final straw, I want to encourage you, if God is with you, you can do it again. You can keep going. There is more in you because there might be something on the other side of that place that you find yourself in that you would not have set an appointment for yourself to be at. That's a lot of times what divine appointments look like, by the way. They look like appointments that we would never have set for ourselves in our own calendar. Hmm. So the snake is hanging off his hand. 
That's what it says. It says it's hanging off of his hand. And the natives look and they see this thing hanging off of Paul's hand. And then he, sh- he says he just shakes it off. He just shakes it off. I like to be in a place where I could just shake off what many times people would call the final straw. Because I'm just so tuned in to what God is up to and what he's doing. And my faith is strong. It's like, I just shake it off. Some people say, that's the final straw. I'm done. I just shake it off. Paul just shakes it off. And the natives are staring at him. This is the picture I get when you read the scriptures. They're like, wait for, is there waiting for him to swell up? Waiting for him to die? You guys ever watch somebody eat those ghost peppers in a restaurant? Like everybody just like watching to see what they're going to do. Is he going to die? Is he going to fall over? They're just watching to see what's going to happen to Paul. They're just watching him. He shakes it off. And it says absolutely no harm came to him whatsoever. A viper is a poisonous snake, by the way. I'm just pointing out that God's protection and provision is sustaining Paul for his mission every step of the way. Whether it's shipwreck, snake bite. Paul's trusting God, and he's leaning into, even in the midst of these inconveniences, whatever it is that God can do to get him in position. So then these natives that don't really know much about Paul's message or the gospel, now all of a sudden, they're very open. It hits me now. Okay, I get it. They were watching to see if he was going to die. And then he didn't die after all this, and they're like, Hmm, who is this man? He might be a god or whatever. And so now the door of opportunity opens. And it says that the natives, they had um, the father of the, of the man who was kind of ruling the village, the, the father who had been the patriarch, this guy named Publius, said he was laying sick and he was dying. So they bring this man to Paul. And Paul lays hands on this man and he prays for him. And the man is healed. But that's not all. It says after that, they brought every sick person on the island. And every one of them got healed. I'm just saying, I think sometimes we underestimate the kingdom impact and opportunity that God might release through our lives if we we're willing to just be inconvenienced for a soul. Wow. I mean, one guy. And as I read this whole story of Paul's journey and everything, I, I think to myself, this is, here's one man, Publius, one man that was laying sick. Paul's reached a lot of people, he's going to continue to reach a lot of people, but there's this one guy, I'm convinced that God would have sent him through everything he went through if it would have only even been for that one man to receive the touch of healing and hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came for the entire world. His sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse all of mankind from their sin if they would repent and give their lives to him. But I am convinced he would have did it all if it was even for one. The heart of God, let that be our heart. And so after this 
time on the island. They spend three months there. They finally get on a boat and they head to Rome. He finally gets there. I want to just remind you, this all started. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea after the time he spent in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea. And then he's on a shipwreck island for three months. He finally gets to Rome to appeal to Caesar. And I guess it was kind of like our court system today. He had to wait two years before a hearing. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But he was on house arrest for two years when he got to Rome. You know he wrote four what we call, scholars call the prison epistles. Four epistles that he wrote while he was in that Roman prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Wow. Getting in awkward positions sometimes will bring great things out. He spends those years there. It says he's on house arrest. It says that many came and visited with Paul while he was there. It says actually that there were Jews there in Rome that when Paul got there, they came. And they said, we've not really heard about you, Paul. We, we've heard a little bit about this sect of Christ. Um, but we know that it's a, it's a, there's a big dissension amongst our people about it. Will you tell us about him? So it's like a revolving door for the next two years in Paul's house arrest. And it says that he was telling some of the Jews about the message of the gospel. And it said some believed. And then it said some did not. They were very interested, but the, it's, it's amazing when he got to the point where he said the kingdom of God is the doors are being flung wide open. And the nations of the earth are being invited in. And at that message right there, many of them walked away. Many of them chose not to believe. Right in front of the message that could save their souls. And some kind of personal barrier was preventing them from being able to experience God's grace. And I sometimes think that it's not so different even in our world today. People flood into churches every weekend across the United States. The message of the gospel, for the most part, is being preached in the predominant amount of those pulpits. But many people, week after week, are coming face to face with the message and for whatever reason, choosing to turn and walk away. My encouragement to us today, church, as we close, is, is to know that we serve a God who has a kingdom that is inclusive to all. But the doorway to get in is very much exclusive. That one way is through Jesus Christ. We won't muddy that down. We won't dance around it. And we will absolutely not apologize for it. That is the message of the gospel. It is a singular path. But for all who will choose that, wow, the inheritance of heaven is available to us all.
I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that today. Amen? Amen. The immeasurable value of one soul. I believe with all my heart, if we're going to reach the full breadth of whoever God wants to lead us to, take us to, the multitudes and the impact that he wants us to make, in our heart, we're going to have to be willing to go the distance for even one lost soul. Amen.